You are listening to the What's the Proof podcast, where we seek to help doctors and other clinicians incorporate the best available evidence into their everyday clinical decision-making. The content of this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized medical advice. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and guest, and no content on this podcast has been approved or sanctioned by Atrium Health. Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of the What's the Proof podcast. Uh, my name is Bobby Scott, and with me is Dr. Sandy Robertson. Uh, Sandy, I feel like we've really accomplished something. Now we are actually recording our second episode. I'll tell you what, we're experts now, right? We are, is yeah. Is this another fake it till you make it? Maybe so, yeah. It I mean, is for me. We fooled a lot of people after the first one. I, I didn't get any hate mail, anything that was really? too critical, every very, you know, very positive. Well, that's good. I think people were too afraid to hurt my feelings, so I got some pretty <laughs> positive feedback too, but we're going to do our best today, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited about today's episode. You know, last time we talked about statin use in the elderly. Uh, today we're going to talk about aspirin, another, you know, Topic Easy that's, topic, yeah, right? Yeah, Easy. Yeah, it's been in the news. Patients are asking about it. Doctors have been confused about aspirin for probably a long time now. So I'm uh, really excited uh, to hear uh, what you have to say. Okay. Well, I, I want to start off with a history lesson. Is that okay? Yeah, please. I love yeah, history. I know, I know I'm a geek, but just bear with me. So aspirin was discovered in 1853 by a German chemist working for Bayer. Yes, Bayer, the company that still produces aspirin today. It was used to treat pain. Its mechanism of action was thought to be CNS related. And it wasn't until 1950 that a family doctor, um, mm-hmm. I'd like to just, yeah, a family doc noticed severe bleeding in some of his patients chewing high amounts of aspergum. Do you remember aspergum, Bobby? You know, I actually had never heard no? of that. I had to look it up, but it's totally it's, fascinating that there was delicious. aspirin gum. Yeah. You, you've tasted it? Oh, yeah. As a kid, I, I ate it. Yeah. You ate it as a kid? Yes. Don't eat, let's don't go there. Okay. Back, back to the facts. So chewing high amounts of aspergum post-tonsillectomy, and he questioned its antiplatelet effects. The first RCT in heart attack survivors with aspirin started in 1963, and in 1971, the mechanism of action being irreversibly inhibiting cyclooxygenase, which we all learn in medical school, that was finally confirmed. By 2007, 20% of the U.S. adult population was taking aspirin for, quote, heart health with over 50% of adults 65 years or older taking aspirin regularly. Now, before we start into all the data for primary prevention, which means you've yet to have a heart attack or yet to have a stroke, um, I want to just give a quick reminder of the numbers. So aspirin use immediately after a STEMI. Secondary prevention now. This is secondary prevention. You just had a STEMI, you chew up an aspirin, standard of care. That has a mortality benefit of 1 in 42. The number needed to treat is 1 in 42 to prevent one death, and that is a very good number, okay? Aspirin after a stroke, again, secondary prevention, you just had your stroke, now you're taking an aspirin. That is a 1 in 70 mortality or dependence benefit, a 1 in 140 for recurrent stroke, 
and a 1 in 245 for major bleed. These are good numbers, okay? So let's be very clear. The numbers for secondary prevention are beneficial and we're not talking about that anymore, okay? Right. <laughs> okay. And, and I think you're talking about number needed to treat there, right? Yes, so number needed can, to treat. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. Number needed to treat is what is the number of patients that need to take this therapy for a defined period of time that's consistent with the studies to see a benefit? So, again, going back to our 1 in 42 mortality benefit for STEMI, 42 people immediately after taking a STEMI that take an aspirin, due to that aspirin alone, that will prevent one death. Okay, That's yeah, what that, that makes means. sense. Okay. Now, I, I do think it's important to note that in May of 2014, the FDA actually denied a request by Bayer Pharmaceuticals to extend aspirin's approval for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. I think I missed this, to be quite honest. I just jumped right over it. I'm sure it was in the news, and I just didn't see it. The FDA reviewed the available data at the time and stated that the evidence does not support the general use of aspirin for primary prevention of a heart attack or stroke. In fact, the FDA noted that there are serious risks associated with use of aspirin, including the increased risk of bleeding in the stomach and brain, in situations where the benefit of aspirin, the benefit of aspirin for primary prevention has not been established. Wow, interesting. I know. Did you know that? No, I don't remember mm-hmm. hearing that at all. So I think you know Bayer just wanted to kind of close the loop and get the FDA indication for primary prevention, and and they the door was shut on that. But yet here we are talking about primary prevention in 2022. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to think that the FDA would deny that when it was pretty much standard of care at the time. Right. Right. And not to say that we don't do things off-label. I'm not saying that we have to follow everything, but in this case, I think we just jumped right over it. So, Bobby, do you want to take some time just to review for the audience what the current guidelines are for aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease? Sure, yeah. So there are lots of uh, major guidelines out there, but probably the two most commonly paid attention to would be the ones by the USPSTF Mm -hmm. as well as the AHA, ASA, Um, those were the most recent ones published in 2019, Um, and they suggested that aspirin might be considered in select high-risk adults between the age of 40 and 70 who are not at an increased risk of bleeding, meaning a history of GI bleed, peptic ulcer disease, any other severe bleed in their Mm -hmm. history, if they're older than 70, chronic kidney disease, thrombocytopenia, you know, they're also taking NSAIDs or right. DOACs or steroids, a lot of different Standard. reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, the they do not give a 10-year risk uh, percentage mm-hmm. as a Anymore. cutoff, like what, you know, what is defined as high risk. They don't give a percentage. And it's right. interesting because they were the group that introduced the risk right. estimator, right? Right. And I think some people are questioning that risk estimator now, correct? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of question mm-hmm. whether it's overestimating risk. So mm-hmm. um, so they give this a class 2B recommendation based on level A evidence, okay. so and high when, quality evidence. When was evidence. this published? In 2019. Oh, so very recent. Okay. Yep. So the USPSTF is interesting uh, because we have uh, history uh, that we've traced back 
um, regarding their recommendations on aspirin for primary prevention. So if you go back to 1996, at that time, the USPSTF suggested that the evidence was insufficient for its use for mm-hmm. primary prevention for adults between 40 and 84 years old. Okay. And then fast forward to 2002, they've completely changed from insufficient to level A, high quality evidence recommending mm-hmm. using it in this same age group. Okay. Which is a very strong recommendation, mm-hmm. good, clear evidence on that. Mm-hmm. So moving forward a little bit to 2009, you start to see that as we get more evidence, mm-hmm. the recommendation is not quite as broad. It's starting to break down different age groups, mm-hmm. um, stratifying between men and women based on age. So the lower cutoff is 45. I yeah, yeah, I remember that well. Mm-hmm. And for women, it was 55. And that was really more for stroke prevention, I believe, yes, at that time. So, And then in 2016, things really got narrow. Mm-hmm. So there... Uh, primary group that they recommended uh, gave it a B grade recommendation for the use of aspirin mm-hmm. were for adults that were between 50 and 59, and they have at least a 10 year or at least a 10 percent 10 year estimated mm-hmm. ASCVD risk, but also have no increased risk of bleeding. Mm-hmm. They have a life expectancy of at least 10 years, Mm -hmm. and they're also willing to take aspirin for 10 years. So they're signing up. They're signing a 10-year contract. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. But only if you qualify. Okay. Okay. And then for the older groups, so 60 to 69 or younger people or even above 70, really there's not a whole lot of, Mm -hmm. um, not a strong recommendation for any of them and then insufficient for most Um, And then what's made headlines recently is this year they put out a new recommendation. And basically, adults 40 to 59 Mm -hmm. um, with a 10% 10-year risk and no increased bleeding risk, they now give that a C recommendation. So we've gone completely back to 1996 on the C. Yes, full circle here. Full circle, okay. So... C meaning now there's question about the risk and benefit ratio, and now they're recommending having an individualized discussion with patients mm-hmm. and, and deciding at that Shared point. Shared decision-making. Right. Right. That's, so, that's always something that makes physicians cringe. It's yeah. all on you. <laughs> you got to spend <laughs> 10 extra minutes now to do <laughs> right, that. Right. What about um, people older than 59? Yeah, so people older than 59, they now say do not do it. That oh, it's a D. No, yeah, it's a D recommendation. Mm. It's not, not beneficial and only harmful. Okay, all right. So, Sandy, we like we just said, we've came a, a long way and basically have gone back to 30 years ago in our recommendations. Mm-hmm. So what is driving this change in both you know, both these sets of guidelines. Right, right. And I, I, I did have to look all this up and, and reread it. And being the nerd that I am, I really enjoyed it. So there, there are three large randomized trials that were all published in 2018. You have the Arrive, the Asprey, and the Ascend. And they're all in tens of thousands of patients, okay? And this is really what's driving this new evidence and the confidence or the lack thereof that the USPSTF is having with regards to the benefits and the harms of aspirin. So uh, if, if you'll 
allow me to, I do think it's interesting to go over the study populations that were in these trials. Okay, yeah, we'll yeah. eventually get to the meta-analyses, but let's kind of break these, this down a little bit for the audience. So the ASCEND trial, they studied diabetics, and that's really important because, you know, right? Diabetics, cardiovascular equivalent, correct? Yeah. Not, not really, but that's what we were taught. So ASCEND studied diabetics, mean age of 63. They studied them for 7.4 years. 75% of those patients were on a statin and only 8% smokers. I found that interesting. That's much lower than the general population. Yeah, wow. The ARRIVE study specifically studied non-diabetics for a mean, with a mean age of 63, same age, for five years. 44% of them were on a statin, but 29% of them were smokers. That's different, That's right? The population's difference. very different. The, the ASPRI or ASPRI, I don't know how to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, they studied mostly non-diabetics. So only 10% of that population had diabetes. They were a decade older. This was specifically looking at elderly. So the mean age was 74, and they studied them for five years. Only 33% of that population was on a statin, and only 4% smokers. Okay, so the study populations are different, but there's so many of them. We're talking, I think, all together, there's over 50,000 patients in these trials. So the study populations are very different, but I think it's enough reliable data to give us some, some good data for that. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And one thing about the ARRIVE trial, too, is the mean risk estimates at baseline. So they actually use two different uh, cardiovascular risk assessments, the old Framingham risk assessment and the baseline mean for those people were 14%. And wow. then when they used the ACHC, AHA calculator, it was 17%. So these are pretty higher, high risk people. That and they I, were non-diabetics. Yeah, yeah. So you can't even count that. Right. Wow. That Yeah, they were well, what I would call a, you know, a heart attack waiting to happen yes, kind of patient. Exactly. A wow. lot of doctors would be like, yeah, we're going to put this guy on statin. Interesting. And so not to go into super deep detail with these studies because we'll put everybody to sleep, but there are just some interesting things about each one. And we just talked about the ARRIVE trial, but uh, ASCEND uh, was interesting because the results are a little different than the other two. So the ASCEND, it did find a small benefit in reduction of serious vascular events with a number needed to treat of 91 but it also found a roughly equivalent potential harm in major bleeding events with a number needed to harm of 111. So small benefit, but also you know, roughly equivalent harm. So the ASPRI trial, like you talked about, was more in elderly patients, which was interesting. And that trial was actually stopped early. So during their interim analysis, they found there was no benefit really with aspirin, and there was actually an increased mortality. Mm. So they stopped that one after about three years. And this was the elderly, relatively healthy right. 4% smokers. And they were dying. Yeah. It's not good. <laughs> okay. That's not good. No, that's never a good side effect. And so the questions became, you know, what caused this mortality benefit? And there was an increased risk in major hemorrhage, but also there was increased cancer-related mortality, which mm. was very surprising mm -hmm. because we've had a lot of studies that have suggested a potential benefit in cancer mortality, particularly around colon cancer. So right. that, can, that was can weird. We, um, may I ask that we just table the cancer 
aspirin and cancer for another day. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll not go into that, but I, I will say they did do a post hoc analysis of that. They went and looked it through all the charts mm-hmm. of all these patients that develop cancers, and they found that both at baseline, both groups, the aspirin group and the non-aspirin group had similar cancer rates at baseline. So that's the real benefit of a large randomized trial that even these unpredicted, uh, you know, outcomes, Mm -hmm. they should be pretty evenly balanced at the baseline. So, um, and then they try to figure out what happened with these people and found that the group in aspirin had a higher rate of stage four metastatic cancer, which may have been what was driving the increased mortality. So maybe it has something to do with, you know, having a cancer at baseline and being on aspirin makes things worse. Don't know. We don't know. But yeah. it's uh, certainly something that needs more study. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So instead of us really trying to summarize the primary endpoints for each of these trials, do, would you give me permission to jump to a meta-analysis to make it a little more concise? Yes, I think everybody would appreciate I think that. they would, okay. So the one that I picked, there's actually two meta-analyses, and the one that I picked I found so interesting was published in Family Practice 2020 by Drs. Moriarty, Moriarty, excuse me, Moriarty and Dr. Abel. And it was just so wonderfully written and such a good systematic review and meta-analysis. And What they wanted to do was compare the data for all the primary prevention randomized controlled studies and divide them, the data, into what was completed prior to 2005 and what was completed after 2005. And their their reasoning for that was that statin use and colonoscopies were much less common in the 1990s compared to the last 15 years. So they're they're trying to differentiate and maybe form a hypothesis as to could this be true, true, unrelated or true, false. They're trying to figure that that statistical data out. So in this meta-analysis, it they did include the three trials that we just talked about, and then they added a fourth trial that was a 2014 study called the JPPP. And in total, in those new studies, those four studies, there were 60,000 patients they were included. And then they compared that statistically to all the older trials, which is over 120,000 patients. So we have a lot of numbers, okay? So let me break this down for you. When you look at both groups all together, you, you pull all the data together, both the studies prior to 2005 and those four studies after 2005 did show a significant reduction in the composite endpoint of MI, stroke, cardiovascular death. Again, that is known as MACE, or Major Adverse Coronary Event. And the older studies, the relative risk was 0.89. In the newer studies, the relative risk was 0.93. Okay, so that's a 7% relative risk, okay, in the newer studies. No difference in both groups um, compared to placebo in all-cause mortality or cardiovascular mortality. So no difference in mortality. But increases in major bleeds were apparent in both groups. Okay, so now just looking at the absolute benefits and harms in these four recent trials, let me give you these numbers. The number needed to treat to prevent one of those major coronary events, MI stroke or cardiovascular death, one of those events was 303. 
So you have to treat 303 patients with an aspirin daily to prevent one of those events, okay, over five to seven years, okay, because that's how long the studies lasted. The number needed to harm in those same patients for an intracranial hemorrhage was 417. So one out of 417 will have an intracranial hemorrhage over five years. And then the number needed to harm for a major hemorrhage is 143. So you will cause a major hemorrhage in one, at, one person out of 143, an intracranial hemorrhage in one out of 417, but you will prevent an MI or a stroke or a cardiovascular death in one out of 303. Those are the numbers we're looking at. So how could how, a... How does that make you feel? <laughs> Uh, not great, I mean, to be hence, honest. Hence why the USPSTF is now changing, has gone down to a C. It makes yeah. perfect sense, right? Yeah, and so now they're recommending having a shared decision-making discussion. So how could you, how could a uh, you know primary care provider translate that into something a patient could understand? Exactly, because not this way, okay? Right. These number needed to treats are important numbers for us as clinicians, and I think it is important to know this. But, and I'm going to give all the credit to these authors. I did not do the math on this. But put another way, this is how these authors summarized it. For every 1,200 persons taking aspirin for primary prevention for five years, there will be four fewer MACE events meaning heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death, three fewer ischemic strokes specifically, three more intracranial hemorrhages, and eight more major bleeds. That's the kind of information that I think if you present to a patient and you, again, go with the way you do this, Bobby, like if you were in Vegas and you were going to place a bet... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what are the chances? This is high stakes here, though. It is high stakes. Yeah. This is serious stuff. It's not something that you blow over. This is not one of those patriarchal, I think you should take aspirin, so therefore just take it. Yeah. Right? So can you repeat that again? Because I think a lot of people want to probably memorize that to okay. be able to talk to patients. For every 1,200 p- persons that take aspirin every day for five years, you there will be four fewer MACE events three fewer ischemic strokes, three more intracranial hemorrhages, and eight more major bleeds. Okay, Sandy, so the last episode we talked about the concept of medical reversal. Now, would you consider this change to be a medical reversal? Great question. Experts might disagree with me, but I do not consider this a true medical reversal. Um, The medical community did not jump forward too quickly based on positive results just from case control cohort trials. We had fairly strong data back in the early 90s that aspirin was looking very positive for primary prevention. But yet now we have so much new data that we cannot ignore it. And I really applaud the organizations like the USPSDF for admitting, okay, now we have to go back. Because that is all we can do, is, is follow the data. But there are lots of hypotheses as to why this could be. Could this be true, true, you know, and, and we just have to change what we're recommending based on our current population. And I think that's where I'm leaning. And these are just broad hypotheses. So let me just 
toss those out for you just to ponder. Okay. Yeah. okay. These have to be proven, but are we truly looking at a different patient population now? We know that we have fewer smokers, right? That's one major risk factor I think we can all agree on. We know that we have advances in the treatment of ACS, advances in the treatment in, in the cath lab. We know that time to cath lab, you know, algorithm is really, really advanced now. We have new antiplatelets. We, we know more patients are on statins. Um, we know that there's PCI advances, you know, stent advances. So perhaps we are looking at just a new generation of patients. And unfortunately, even if there is a small benefit, even if you do believe those numbers, the risk, unfortunately, may be too high for a large portion of our patients. So, so my question to you, Bobby, as you sit in clinic and you talk to patients, how frustrating is this to explain, to try to explain this to our patients, okay? Because first we, we try to convince them to take it, and now we have to explain why they shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, that, it's, it's a little tough. But I, I've been surprised about how open patients have been. I, I think mm-hmm. especially patients are eager to stop taking medicine for, for the most part. There are some yes. people that are very resistant to that, but a lot of people, you know, if I don't take another pill, I'm great with that. Right. So, but, you know, when you have these kind of complete turns, you mm-hmm. know, in the evidence, it's it's taught me to reword how I recommend, you know, what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm less enthusiastic about benefits. I'm not going to make big promises about how right. some medication is going to help. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I try I've, to be much I've less I've made that opinionated. mistake many times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I try to be a lot more numbers-based, try to give them these, you know, like the example you gave with number, mm-hmm. number needed to treat, number needed harm, try to mm-hmm. give them some understandable yep. numbers to to weigh and then really listen to what their concerns are, what their hesitations their are. are. That's mm-hmm. where we get into that nice shared decision-making that's the basis of the evidence-informed decision-making, right? That's exactly right. That's right. So, so yeah. So, Sandy, you know, after all this, you know, is there any patient that you would recommend aspirin for for cardiovascular prevention? I'm giving you the hard question. <laughs> Maybe. Nice. <laughs> so, go just, just trying to piggyback in, and you did the hard work for me just explaining. So, as I, if I were a patient and I just listened to you, then I would, I, I could see if my biggest fear was because I saw my mother have a heart attack at age 56. Sure. And I have a 10 year risk based on the calculation that may or may not be accurate of 17%. Mm-hmm. And I'm 51, and I have never had a GI bleed, and I have no peptic ulcer disease, and I'm not on anticoagulants. And you explain these things to me, I might say I'm going with the aspirin. And I think that you would agree with me in that situation. Yeah, especially if the patient was really worried about it. But it would have to be that narrow group of 40 to 59. Yes. They don't have any bleeding risk factors before I would really be, you know, I guess, fully on board with that. But, you know, the patient makes the decision about their their Exactly. And it's over the counter. I mean, at the end of the day, we don't have a say-so. Yeah, they can take it if they want to. Yes, they can. There's no more aspergum, though. I know. I wish we had that. I know. It really was delicious. Yeah. So I guess when we talk about bleeding risk then, mm-hmm. you know, because that's, I think, you know, what patients are going to know about. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the more, mo- I guess, most concerning mm-hmm. risk factor for bleeding? Right. So I went back. I always try to go back to the original studies and see who, who was excluded from the trial. 
So when I just, we went, we went over the intracranial hemorrhage data and the major bleed data from the three large trials. I went back and looked at who was excluded from those trials. And honestly, I was surprised. They were pretty aggressive in who they allowed in the study. So you were excluded if you had a history of a GI bleed in the past six months or a history of active peptic ulcer disease in the last six months. Okay. Recent stuff. Recent stuff. Okay. So history of GI bleed is kind of a cop out. What does that really mean? Okay. You had a GI bleed 20 years ago. Does that still apply? And I get those questions all the time and I don't know how to answer them. Okay. But in these trials, it was recent. They also excluded anyone on any anticoagulant. So warfarin, Lovenox, or, you know, low molecular weight heparins or DOAX. And finally, they excluded active liver disease. Those were the only exclusions. So let me give you some numbers that I commonly just quote to the residents in, for just overall bleeding risk with aspirin. So low-dose aspirin is linked to about two GI bleeds per year per 1,000 patients. But that risk is multiplied by 10 in patients with a history of GI bleed. There is some debate as to how recent that GI bleed needs to be, and I don't always have the answer for that. Other high-risk to me, somewhat no-brainer conditions are concomitant meds with DOAX, antiplatelets, warfarin, prednisone, daily NSAID use. When I see someone on daily meloxicam for their OA of their knee, I, and they, it's primary prevention, I cringe when they're also on low-dose aspirin. It's not to be underestimated. Although I can't, it's more difficult for me to give you absolute numbers. Those are all based on case control studies, cohort studies. It's hard to know how many NSAIDs these patients are taking, I just don't have the hard numbers. Now, let me make it also very clear to you that with regards to GI bleed, we know that PPIs are beneficial for patients who need to take aspirin or other high-risk conditions, including NSAIDs, prednisone. And certainly for secondary prevention, like let's go back to we know that aspirin does have a net benefit. If you have that patient who really needs an aspirin, but they also have bleeding risk, that is when I'm an advocate for PPIs. And I think that then that's a whole other discussion about the risk of PPIs. But in this situation, that's what I recommend. Yeah, I mean, with that, you have a lot more. I mean, we talk about chronic PPIs and yes. just for treating GERD, but you know, this is a whole different risk factor. Right. You know, stand a lot more to benefit from a PPI when you have also this risk factor, I right? I think so. I think so, yes. Welcome to our next segment entitled Residents Ask the Darndest Things. And I have the luxury of just introducing Dr. Scott for this. I know that you precept a lot, Bobby. And yeah. I am sure you've had a question that you had some trouble answering. Um, care to care to share with us today? Yeah, yeah. So, yes, this actually, this question came two days ago. So Great. this is very recent. Very uh, one of my residents, one of our fabulous interns was precepting with me. And asked me the question, when you have a patient with allergic rhinitis, do you have a preferred oral antihistamine that you recommend? Great question. It was. It and is I, a good question, and we blow it off all the time. Yeah, what, yeah. Allergic rhinitis? Yeah, give them whatever. Who cares? Whatever, yeah. Um, and I told him, I don't actually know the evidence on that. Mm -hmm. um, there may be some comparative studies to see if one is better, but um, typically I've just picked one and right. usually my 
I'm personal experience from treating my own allergies, I've found Zizol or the mm-hmm. levocetirazine to be the most effective personally, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it truly is. Right, right. So, so we looked it up together and uh, did a brief literature review and came across the only thing I could really find that was relevant to this question was a uh, meta-analysis done in 2013 of Mm -hmm. 10 observational studies looking at individual patient data. Okay. And so they were prospective observational studies. Mm -hmm. And so it included a lot of people, an end of about 140,000 patients. And it was done in Germany. Okay. So the outcome they were looking at were a couple of symptom scores for allergic rhinitis and we're studying four different antihistamines, okay. three of which we commonly use. One, I'm guessing, may be something that's used in Europe more. Mm-hmm. But um, the antihistamines they looked at were desloratadine, mm-hmm. fexofenadine, mm-hmm. levocetirazine, and then the fourth one was abastine, which I've never heard of. So Yeah, uh, I've heard of it, but I think that's Europe exclusive. It's non-U.S. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't think so. But. Okay. Uh, but interestingly, um, this study suggests that levocetirazine, the, oh. you know, the one that I thought personally wow. was... Uh, this is why you picked this topic. Ex- yeah, it just <laughs> makes me look really smart. So, but it was found to be the most effective of the four across these uh, observational studies. So in reducing the symptom scores. So hmm. that's what we landed on. Mm-hmm. Um, I did remind him that... Uh, we have good evidence that suggests that intranasal corticosteroids mm-hmm. are actually better yeah. overall than oral antihistamines, so that usually is going to be your first-line recommendation. But if you had to choose an antihistamine, based on the evidence we have now, and this is the right. best that I could find, that maybe mm-hmm. levocetirazine is the best. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. a, you know, it wasn't randomized controlled trials that right. were directly comparing head-to-head, but, but it's the probably the best is, we got. It seems like the cost, I mean, these are all over the counter, but it seems like the cost have really come down, even for the isomer. Oh, yeah. You know, you know the Zizol, it's yeah, cheaper it's, now. Yeah, it's generic over the counter yeah. now, so. That really makes a difference for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. I really, when there's a huge price difference, even if there's a statistical benefit, I have to look really hard. Right. Is it really worth it? Right. Because a lot of times it's not first line given the cost difference. I love it when we can even the playing field with cost. Yes, <laughs> it is great. Patients love that. Well, excellent. And for some reason, you may you may have a, a disagreement here, but I find that patients struggle with the intranasal steroid. Sometimes they just, even though we keep recommending it, they don't seem to be as compliant with actually swallowing a tablet. Is that what you're finding still? or is that Yeah, I think... Yeah, you know, there's different reasons people yeah. don't like them. They don't like squirting anything up their nose mm-hmm. or, you know, they say it tastes bad, mm-hmm. which if they're actually tasting it, it means they're not Doing using it correctly, it correctly mm-hmm. and they're probably inhaling too vigorously. And, right. um, and right. you know, fluticasone propionate, you know, mm-hmm. has the flowery smell, which I personally love, but <laughs> some patients really find right. that repulsive. So. Right, right. Okay. Well, excellent. And I think uh, you're... Your intern is lucky to have you. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You know what? We're lucky to have a wonderful audience that is listening to our <laughs> podcast and we sending are. us nice emails. But if anybody wants to send us you know, critical emails, we're okay with that. We, we have really thick skin. Are. Yeah, we, yeah. Our, our skin has become thick over the years. Yes. I'll just cry a few tears. I'll get over <laughs> it fast. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Sandy. Uh, this is you know, excellent. Uh, I have so much fun doing this. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to our next episode, right. uh, which will be I, out soon. 
team. Can we pick a just a got to pick a softball topic. home run topic next time. So but yeah. nobody wants to listen to that. That's true. That's true. All right. Thanks so much, Bobby. And that's going to wrap up our show today. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review and hit that subscribe follow button in your podcast app of choice. For any questions or comments about today's episode, drop us an email at whatstheproofpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.